0: This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day, this is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures with another edition of our Digital Leadership Podcast. Today is my distinct pleasure to interview Zach Shelby. Zach is an entrepreneur, investor, and technologist in the embedded space with a passion for tiny ML and internet engineering. He's a co-founder and CEO of Edge Impulse, enabling developers to create the next generation of intelligent devices with embedded machine learning. Prior, Zach was co-founder of Sensinode, exiting the company to Arm in 2013. At Arm, he served as vice president of marketing and director of technology for Internet of Things. Zach founded the MicroBit Foundation in 2016 to bring the brilliant educational work of the BBC to children and teachers around the world. Used by millions of young people in over 50 countries, MicroBit is paving the way for a whole new generation of makers and IoT pros. He's known as the pioneer in the use of IP and web technology and low-power networks with 6Lopan and Co-op standards development and is co-author of the book 6Lopan, The Wireless Embedded Internet. He has served as a technical advisory board and and board of directors at the Ipso Foundation and was awarded the Nokia Foundation Award in 2014 for his work on the Internet of Things. Zach, it's a great pleasure to feature you on our program. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Ken. It's so good to be here. Great.
0: So really, Keith topics we'll talk about today generally in theming the conversation. One is, of course, we always love to hear about your digital industry journey and perspective. We'll want to talk a bit about your experience as a founder who has successfully exited your company. Uh, A lot of uh, Momenta Ventures portfolio companies generally uh, appreciate those kind of topics. Of course, we'll want to deep dive on Edge Impulse, which is doing some really great things in the space. Uh, And then a little bit talking about you as as an investor as well. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and and, and jump into um, your own professional journey tell me a bit about that journey and how it has informed your views overall
1: well I was born at a really lucky time in the history of technology um, I uh, got a hold of a, of a really special computer when I was a child eight years old I got the leftover Commodore 64 from my father's um auto repair business. And that Commodore 64 for me was magic because um, you could create with technology. I got very frustrated as a kid that you couldn't take things apart and really understand how they worked and how you could do more with them. So getting a hold of this Commodore 64 was just mind-blowing for me um, back in the 1980s. And so I was born at a time where personal computers right, started to be available to the middle class in, in the United States. And um, that got me started on on my path towards um, computers, engineering, invention um, from that Commodore 64 experience. Um, I was also lucky because in the 1990s, it was really the time when the internet was starting to to transition from a academic network so it started as a university and military network to just getting opened up to the public and i was at the very early early edge um, as a teenager hacking the early internet servers you know breaking into university networks to look at boring syllables and ftp servers there wasn't really much there um, but it was an exciting time to be Using a new networking technology that connected all computers, and and um, so I got very excited about the internet and really wanted to to spend my career working with um, uh, invention and the internet. It's really what what drove me. I uh, went to school in Michigan, but very early on, I I had a felt a need to go see the world and, and go abroad. I think a lot of young people do. And so, in my in my second year of university, I um, went to Finland, of all places in the world, and uh, and I never came back. <laughs> I went to Finland and to to the horror of my parents, and I, I never came back. I I um I fell in love with the technology boom that was happening over there, and I ended up staying, finishing my degree, um, and getting my first job in technology um, straight out of electrical engineering um, studies. And, and that first job was wiring up an, uh, a weather station. I always remember this weather station at the top of one of the research buildings there in Finland. And my job was to make this weather station in 1998, 1999, um, internet connected with a little embedded, um, little embedded processing card that was on it. And we did that. We we made one of the first internet connected uh, weather stations back then, uh, which is still running to this day. That same weather station is up there on that roof, and it's still operating. A couple of hardware upgrades in between.
0: It's a uh, it, you know it's it's interesting. I consider your early experience to be what I um, think full stack, and this is one of the things that we always think about in digital industry practitioners. Is they're usually coming from an electrical engineering background. Or computer science, and they've ultimately uh, touched both the atoms and the bits, uh, if you will, to bring them together in terms of full solutions. And so I, th- having a little bit of this background in terms of your own journey is uh, is fascinating, especially starting off with a, a Commodore 64. I actually started off with a, 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 a Trash 80, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I can appreciate where you came from in terms of the early days. Your thread of experience really has migrated up the technology stack from edge wireless to cloud and thinking over the various companies that you've worked with. What are some of the trends that you're seeing relative to each of those areas and, and you know, and ultimately thinking uh, you know, how these will converge in, you know, in some of the more recent activities you've been doing as well?
1: Well, something that's always fascinated me is um, embedded, how, how we can embed, compute and um, sensing and control and communication capabilities in the physical things even though i love computers i don't want everything to be a computer in the sense that i have a keyboard and i have to spend my time and my energy fighting with it because we do fight a lot with computers we have to admit (laughs) um i love this kind of integrated embedded technology that's just there it works Mm. and that's what fascinated me in my early career as a, as a hardware kind of electrical engineer who liked internet and software. I, I wanted to see this, this technology go further. And, and that's a trend I've been following through my whole career is that that um, amazing wave of new embedded technologies are coming and what we've been able to do with them. And so in the early you know 2000s, we were just making this transition from Kind of bare metal code that ran on these these really really limited um, microcontrollers. We called them controllers because they literally were were hand coded control units that did nothing else but those those assembly commands that we put in them. Um, in the two thousands, those transitioned into being really little computers. We started to build um, real time operating system kernels. We started to have drivers. We were able to build wireless. and and wireless communication stacks into them. And so I think about this industry of embedded going through waves of compute. And I I recently gave a a keynote talk talking about these waves. And and this first wave in in the pre-2000s, so 1980s and 90s, was this bare metal, um, very single-purpose wave. The second wave was bringing in um, communications, was really what drove. the increase in capabilities, the the more complex software stacks, real-time operating system kernels. But a lot of the focus was still around safety, around real-time, and then around some of the communications. Um, In the 2010s, we saw another another really interesting wave happen. When we tried to bring IoT into these devices, um, the level of complexity and the amount of compute power that we put into the devices just exploded. So I always talk about the 2010s as the, the time of IoT um, and of the real OS coming into Embedded. We went from kernels to really full-fledged operating systems. If you look at what we built at ARM around embed OS, we really built a, a modern, complete operating system stack. In order to deal with all the complexity of internet protocols, um, cryptography, we'd have to implement things like TLS and DTLS, on these microcontrollers, um, cloud communication stacks, um, device management stacks, all that had to get squeezed into these these devices, which now transitioned to 32-bit microcontrollers um, based on Cortex-M in order to handle all that complexity. So I think IoT really drove this 2010s wave of compute in Embedded. And what we're seeing happen now is really exciting because we got the compute, right? Moore's Law caught up with what we wanted to do. We're now packing more transistors, more compute power, a lot of math right into these devices. And what I'm seeing happening now is that we're starting to take advantage of that compute to do smarter processing, to do more with the data, the sensor data that we can get at the device level and save battery power, save um, bandwidth. We do a lot with LP WAN these days and there's very little bandwidth there. And that's a trade off for um, range and coverage. And so I really think that the 2020s are going to be driven by this advanced processing, um, really using machine learning right right at the sensor edge, taking advantage of the compute power that's there because of these previous waves that went through. And this is a thread I've been following through my career that I think is really fascinating to see how embedded has just just, um, improved by orders of magnitude.
0: You know, I was um, going to take a, a sidebar there and talk a little bit about your experience as a founder. But b- because of what you've just relayed, I think maybe worthwhile. Let's jump into Edge Impulse because uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm very interested to see how this is converging to your your newest entrepreneurial activity and that. And then maybe we can step back to some of your prior ones as well.
1: I'm happy to. Yeah, Edge Impulse is really the result of um, myself and my co-founder, Young Young Boom. Um, getting involved with developers at ARM. While we were at ARM, we ran a developer open source um, activity where we would go and work on projects um, out in the open with developers. Uh, We did a lot of the early work around Python and JavaScript on Embedded, taking advantage of that new compute I talked about. But we also started looking at what's next. And, um, And one of the things we were hearing from our developer community was that They're interested in machine learning, but they have no idea how to apply it on a microcontroller. It's a big mess, (laughs) really, really complicated stuff. Um, And so we did this work to um, collaborate with the developer community and our own development team to try to make that easier. How could we bring machine learning algorithms down to the microcontroller level and really make it a tractable problem for, for normal embedded developers, not data scientists, not ML experts, just a normal developer that, in their day job, they work with devices uh, in some way, and we ended up creating some pretty cool projects back two and a half years ago. Something called MicroTensor that um, that helped merge the the big ML models that came from the TensorFlow world down to these more compact, um, quantized, uh, optimized models that can run on a microcontroller without special acceleration and um, with a tool chain that was understandable for the developer. And that was really successful. Um, we got a lot of developer interest. Um, we, we could see a lot of applications that were possible, but we also saw some problems. Um, it turns out that just getting the math to run on the device isn't the hard part. The hard part is the whole rest of the life cycle around ML because you're dealing with data rather than code. You have to somehow collect that data, organize it, um, generate models using it, uh, test those models, version those models, um, test them again before you can go to deployment. And eventually you get to that, that part where you generate the math that goes on the device. Um, so this life cycle of ML, especially when you're dealing with um, sensors and devices, is super, super complex. And it's very hard to piece together um, yourselves, uh, regardless of the size of company. And so that's what drove us to to found Edge Impulse, was to help solve that problem of how do we get this life cycle to work for people that want to apply ML um, on embedded? And how do we make it easy for these developers who don't have data science and ML expertise to go and get started, right? Collect the sensor data, um, apply that sensor data with some great off-the-shelf algorithms that will, will solve real problems like uh, using vibration for predictive maintenance, whether it's anomalies or specific failure mode classifications, uh, using audio for, for detecting faults or potential activities that you're interested in logistics, uh, using images to detect anomalies, for example, in a manufacturing line um, or for um, health care. So there's all kinds of applications that, that are, are really um, motivating for, for all of us that we want to be able to do on these devices. And our job is to enable that.
0: Are you seeing any early, you know, called first use cases or killer use cases? You've already mentioned predictive maintenance or analytics as, a, as an interesting one.
1: Yeah, we're seeing a few trends that that are really driving early adoption. Of course, there's there's interest from our developer community all over the place, right? You name it, if it's in embedded, they want to apply ML. So we're seeing like long term, this will go to every market segment, every application where there are 32-bit microcontrollers involved. There'll be some aspect of ML, that but that's long term. Short term, we've seen a lot of interest from the health industry. And that's really key right now under this pandemic. Um, The health industry has been making use of sensors and technology for a long time, but they've gotten kind of everything they can out of sensors. So some of our early lead customers and and, and projects are around um, monitoring of people's health. And this gets down to the biometric level, the biosignal level. So monitoring ECG, monitoring motion, monitoring temperature. And then deriving more advanced um, information out of that, like how how is someone sleeping, how is someone um, reacting to a potential sickness like COVID nineteen, and so we're we're involved with that a lot, and I think that's going to drive the early adoption of this strongly, especially po- po- during and post pandemic. We're going to see that that become even more common. Um, we've also been helping with. Other aspects of COVID-19, um, one of our, our users is developing a cough algorithm, for example, using audio to detect coughing and sneezing. And that's something that could be deployed in public spaces or in someone's home to just get a feeling for how people are doing, how much activity is there that could be spreading a disease. And so that's something one of our, one of our developers is, is doing on the platform. So this area of health, I, I expect to grow and get more advanced. Um, we're seeing lots and lots of activities in uh, asset tracking and asset health, and that includes humans as well. So in professional commercial applications, we are seeing tons of interest in, in um, trackers for worker health and safety. And so this is getting into anomalies in uh, the behavior of workers, um, potential safety um, situation: Someone's fallen down, or a tool is mal- malfunctioned right next to them, and that could be a potential um, safety situation. So, getting help to workers um, faster, uh, right when it's needed, as well as monitoring valuable assets: is an asset being used? How is it being used? Right? How often is it being used? Sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference between a machine that's just parked and a machine that's still but in use. Right? How do you tell that difference? Come up. Um, quite a lot, and then of course predictive maintenance. I think predictive maintenance in industry is huge, and it can be applied over so many different things, over so many different sensors. Um, I've had the pleasure of being an advisor for the company Penisense, which is a San Jose-based startup in that space, and it's it's just been fascinating to see where the technology's gone, what MEMS sensors have enabled us to do. Right, um, very cheap, very high precision sensors that we can put um, right on these. These machines, and even after the fact, we can—we don't have to build it in um, when the machines are made. We can just stick on a small wireless, battery-powered device, and make these kinds of measurements
0: you've talked a lot about the developer community and it, it, it feels like as a, a route to market in some sense and I know you did a lot of work in, in arm around this as well I guess as you look to develop your ecosystem um, this developer ecosystem you know who do you look at it in terms of who's done it well out there how do you you know model best practices for developer ecosystem
1: development yeah the developer, community and community in general, right? It's really powerful when you're working with software. And and there's two different ways to go about a go-to-market with software technology. One is the enterprise route, where you go enterprise first, and really, you really only care about the enterprise. And then you care about the developers when you've landed an enterprise deal, right? Then you start working with the developers and helping them out, et cetera. And then that's about just product support. And that's the, that's the path that we took at SensiNote as well. We tried to make our technology available as, as widely as possible, but really we, we had an enterprise model. Um, what I've learned since then and working with developers is that actually the developer and the developer community can be a really powerful um, amplifier to your message, um, to extending your product and to educating the engineering community, right? When something's very new, so especially when you're introducing new technology, right? There's a there's a rate of change that an industry is able to, to move at, and it requires these early adopters and and developers who want to learn about it before there are applications in their in their workplace, right? In their day job, they do need to learn about these things ahead of time. Machine learning happens to be one of those that right now um, developers want to learn about. In fact, uh, we found from our our research that. Forty percent of all developers right now um, are interested to learn more about ML, and that includes IoT developers. So developers are, are a way to to go and seed a market, bring a new technology, um, and and get advocates for what you're doing. And eventually, developer communities are great lead generation machines. Those developers are are happy with what you do; they want to use that in their in their work when they get a chance to to use this. Machine learning in the case of Edge Impulse, they'll definitely use Edge Impulse if they've been happy with the experience they get um, as a developer for free using the platform. And so that's how I think about developers. Uh, The tricky thing is that working with these developer communities is completely different than working with enterprises. So you really have to think about um, the culture, the messaging, um, the business model, right? The, The way you give access to the technology the way you allow your users to contribute to your technology, all those things have to be rethought if you have a developer-first approach to go-to-market. Mm-hmm. And that is what we've done in this Edge Impulse um, startup. We've, we've we've used developers as our go-to-market, which is very common in enterprise SaaS, right? All, most enterprise SaaS companies, open-source databases, um, middleware, you name it, um, tend to have a developer-first um kind of strategy and you know people that do this well i I would name you know folks from that industry you know neo4j and the developer space done a great job um of course when you work with people in devops like gitlab um they've done a great job with developer community and um in the data space i would i would say treasure data has done an amazing job um which was recently acquired by arm treasure data built uh an incredible community around logs and log um, collection called Fluentd in the Fluent community, now part of the Linux Foundation, mm-hmm. and they just built a huge following for collecting data, right? Because they put these great open source tools out there and built a community around it. It's it's really free free traction for what they were doing um, with very little, you know, economic cost for them. It just took them to put the energy into it and do the right thing and let some of their engineers you know focus on that community so there's a lot of good examples where that works but it doesn't work for everything so what we see a lot in engineering um embedded is a lot of enterprise first go to markets and that sometimes just makes sense right it might be so specialized what you're doing it it might not be appropriate for individual developers to get their hands on it and help you bring it to market Um, but software and machine learning is definitely a space where where developers are super important. Mm.
0: You know, most our re- most recent connection with you, I believe, came uh, via the the Laura Alliance, another great community in that regard. Mm. Um, and I think it was a TTN meeting that you spoke at uh, earlier this year. Um, you know, when you think about low power wide area networks, whether, you know, LoRa or, you know, licensed spectrum, if you will, alternatives, it does seem like an interesting convergence of that, which you're talking about in terms of edge intelligence and, and, uh, and of course, you know, powered by the cloud. We have a, um, a thesis, an investment thesis that comes very close to the old MIT concept of smart dust, right, from the the, the late 90s early 90s, actually, technically, um, and 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 we, you know, invest in companies right around that whole thing. What's interesting, I think, in what you guys are doing is the convergence there of this edge intelligence and the communications you mentioned in terms of, the, you know, kind of the waves, if you will. How do you see these things kind of converging going forward, um, especially around, you know, communications of these edge devices?
1: That's a great question. I, I, totally agree that there is a convergence happening between WAN and edge intelligence, whether it's machine learning or other techniques. Um, it's really important that we get more out of the sensors and the data that we get right at the edge and that we can take advantage of the WAN technology. Um, what's happened is kind of an inverse relationship between compute and um radio this is something that we saw a couple years ago while i was at arm was that moore's law had caught up with with compute right we were we're packing more transistors and we can do a lot more compute per watt but radio really hasn't improved right with radio we're fighting physics and what happens there is that we always have a trade-off between um, coverage and range and resilience and bandwidth and the power that you use to achieve that And in the early days, right, in the 2000s, we thought that radios are going to become faster and faster and faster and faster, right? We're going to have this continual increase in the bandwidth we have available. It turns out that's not the case, right? We took a different route um, and started to appreciate coverage, right? We want coverage for these devices. And IoT in particular, when these devices are moving everywhere, we've made a big trade-off around the amount of bandwidth that we have available. And and so what's happening is that um, this is a magic combination, right? You have very limited bandwidth, very low power devices that are expected to live for for sometimes years on battery. But you have very advanced sensors and compute available right on these edge devices. That's where ML becomes um, a must-have, right? And we're going to see that more and more. ML becomes a must-have because of battery or bandwidth or cost constraints. Um, right at the sensors, right at the edge. And so when we start combining ML with, with LoRaWAN, we're seeing that every single time when there's a more advanced sensor, so there's more data than the LoRaWAN network can handle, that's a place where we can apply machine learning. So we're seeing a lot of business cases around uh, LoRaWAN in particular. And, and, I, and I totally agree, the LoRaWAN community as a developer community, as a grassroots movement is, is just amazing that's another reason that we love to collaborate um in that ecosystem
0: yeah and the model the model with its flexible deployment certainly allows for people to kind of it's, it's much more closer to the ethos of um of you know kind of the community if you will development you know open source uh you know kind of crowdsource, if you will because you don't mm-hmm. require an operator to be in the middle which we've always liked about it as as well and i think ultimately it'll you know it'll help power that so um let's let's switch topics a little bit Ed, and and you putting on your investor hat i i'm fascinated with your angel investing you've already mentioned one of your companies what are some of the traits um, of a company that you look for you know prior to uh to investing to support your decisions
1: yeah and the investing is interesting right like when i when i first exited from arm and I had the ability to go and invest um I'm not one for the stock market i don't you know don't really like that kind of um, risk without doing the work, if you know what I mean. I, I like to be able to kind of influence what I'm successful in rather than just being lucky. <laughs> um, and so I didn't, wasn't really interested in that, but I wasn't confident that I'm the right person to invest in startups. Why me? Why can I help, right? I'm a young engineer who, who happened to build a company and sell it. And so I was a little unsure at first. It and was, It was interesting. It was actually a Talk that I listened to when I I got an award from the Nokia Foundation back in those days for for doing IoT work. And um, Yorma Olila spoke at that event, this award ceremony. And Yorma Olila was the CEO of Nokia back in the boom days, right, when Nokia was really growing as a mobile phone company. And something that he said there really struck me, and that's that um, he had just donated 5 million euros of his own money to the Nokia Foundation. That's a foundation that provides grants for graduate students studying in technology. They want to ensure that um, there's new technology out there and graduate students can go and do their research. And so Jorma um, contributed 5 million euros of his own money um, to this. And his reasoning was really simple. When he was a young man and a young engineer, uh, he was funded by a scholarship from a, from a foundation in Finland to go and study um, at Oxford in the UK. And that changed his career, right? That was the thing that enabled him to go on his trajectory to come, go and, and, and become the CEO of Nokia and make that successful. And so his reasoning was simple. I, if this is what made me successful. If I can help do the same thing for young people, that's going to make them successful. And that's good use of, of, of my money and my time. And I, and I went, wow, right? I actually really care about this, you know, bringing new technology to people, about building startups, and I have some experience. I've done this, and I could help others. So that was the moment I decided that all right, I'm going to dedicate any money that I make from from my my startup activities into into other startups and try to do some mentoring for for other entrepreneurs. And so that that's always kind of the aha moment for me. Um, and so I founded my own. Um, venture investment fund that I make investments out of, and it's like a small greenfield fund. And what I look for is really simple, right? I've always appreciated vertical go-to-market strategies when you can bring a technology um, much closer to the end customer. And I've always wanted to be involved with those, but at the same time, I'm a deep tech kind of person and leader. I'm able to bring deep tech to embedded developers. And so it's hard to do both at the same time. (laughs) So I've always wanted to get involved with verticals and this was a chance for me to do that. So the the investments I've made have been much closer to the verticals and typically focused around commercial and enterprise industrial applications where I know a lot. Um, And so for example, uh, Valkia Lighting that I've invested in um, is a leading uh, commercial industrial lighting system provider in Scandinavia. IKEA, for example, as a customer um, in Sweden. So they provide the entire lighting system, the lights, the control systems. I'm a control wireless system guy, so that was exciting. Um, Augmenta, which does industrial augmented reality. How can we bring augmented reality into industrial settings? Really, really important right now with what we're what we're seeing with um, with the coronavirus and the lack of lack of um, manpower available in some facilities. This helps helps with that. So getting right down into the, the user interface of compute right, in industrial environments is exciting. Um, I got involved with um, computer vision and machine learning in real estate. So I'm an investor in Kubicasa. Kubicasa is a leading virtualization um, collection tool, it uses a mobile phone to take a video of a piece of real estate from the inside, an apartment or a home, and it uses computer vision and machine learning to turn that into a floor plan that the real estate agent uses in a listing. And that's an amazing piece of tech um, to just digitize interior spaces and and, and use this for real estate. Um, super important now during pandemic when people can't go physically visit every place before they, they're serious enough to go and take a look. And so in investments like this have, have driven me where there's a, there's a, there's a path to market um, in an industry and we can influence that. Um, the other thing I look for is the, the use of um, the use of machine learning um, and computer vision. I really think that that's going to make a huge difference in the future where we can apply, apply this technology. So that I want to see this technology be applied and what it can do. So I've always looked for that angle. And then of course, just a great founder team, right? Founders that I understand and that I think I can help. Because if I can't help, right, then it doesn't really, my money doesn't matter. It's not really about the money from angels. It's about their help and their network.
0: Mm, truly smart in in that regard. Um, fascinating because our our fund one, which is our own evergreen fund, where the LPs for that it probably matches pretty closely uh, your both thesis and uh, and focus areas. So uh, post this, uh, we'll have to certainly compare notes on some of those because it sounds like fascinating companies. Look, one one final topic, and we would be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about this a little bit. Is the work that you've done around the Microbit Foundation and you know how it gets kids interested in in technology, um, probably really relevant these days, as many of us are um, sheltering in place with our preteens. So, <laughs> tell me oh, a bit yeah. about what you've done with uh, with a Microbit Foundation, your inspiration, and uh, you know, a little overview of it.
1: Yeah, so the Microbit was an incredible project that was started by the BBC, or um, the BBC looked at uh, the previous wave of compute, and and like we had the Commodore 64 in the US. Um, the UK had the BBC Micro. Interestingly enough, the BBC Micro is how ARM got started. Acor Computers was, was part of that. And eventually, um, ARM spun off um, as a processor design that was, that was made with the first BBC Micro. Uh, so that had a very strong history in the UK. And so the BBC wanted to look at, well, what's next? H- how do we improve young people's interest in technology How do we improve their interest in coding and STEM? And and most importantly, how do we get more girls involved with technology? Because there's a huge divide in the UK in particular between girls and boys and their interest in STEM and technology in general. Um, The interest levels are very low for for girls. So how can we fix that? And so the BBC did something really um, unique, which was they got people who weren't engineers involved with building this thing. So psychologists, teachers, right, education experts, um, branding experts, people that rethought what the experience might be for young kids getting involved with technology, right? Like, what's the Commodore 64 moment for kids today? That's the way I think about it. Um, And that project um, ended up creating a little embedded computer. It's about the size of a credit card. Um, that has just two buttons, twenty five LEDs that make up a five by five matrix, um, some sensors like motion sensors, and a Bluetooth low energy um, wireless interface. And it's a little computer that can run programs that the kids create and allows you to to wire stuff up to it, like servos, LEDs, right? other external sensors um, send messages between the machines. So it's really, you know, reinventing this, I can create um, experience for young kids today. And the BBC did a brilliant job doing that. But of course, to make that happen, they had to collaborate very broadly across the industry. They don't have the capabilities to bring that kind of product to market. So they brought on um, Arm, Microsoft, Samsung, and many, many other organizations um, to go build a project to bring this microbit and give it away to every single grade seven student in the UK. This is back in 2016 um, that that giveaway happened. And that was the first time a computing element like this was ever given to every single child at a certain grade level in a whole country. So it was an amazing project. Um, that project was successful, but the problem is projects don't tend to have a very long shelf life. Um, projects get wrapped up and stopped, and that's what was happening after this original project. So so um, uh, the the team around the original Microbit project was looking for help to go and turn that project and that idea into a long-term project. Um, foundation that could bring this technology to kids all over the world, really productize um, the BBC microbit into something that's long-lasting. And uh, I got involved with it through, through ARM. Um, our team was helping sponsor the project. We were giving engineering resources. Uh, one of our guys did the first layout of the PCB. Another one of our software engineers did all the original software work um, as a volunteer activity from ARM. And so when they started looking for help to turn this into a, a real organization, they realized they, they were missing this entrepreneurial spirit. They didn't have anybody that knew how to run and build a, a, a startup, right, that could bring this kind of technology to market in a cheap way. Um, and so I was given the opportunity to take on the the, the co-founder and chief exec role um, by Arm. Actually, it was Arm's exec team, Simon Seegers, Mike Muller, um, that uh, gave me that opportunity. So I'm always very thankful for them, um, to been able to go and and work on the micro bit. But when we were given that chance together with my, my co-founder and CTO, Johnny Austin, who's still at the foundation, um, we were kind of on our own. Once we, once we got out there, we literally went and created a tech startup as a nonprofit from scratch because there wasn't anything to start with. So we, we did things like, um, working with the lawyers to create the entity in the UK that was a nonprofit, um, doing all the IPR work to bring the IPR into the foundation and then productizing, right? Creating an online uh, system to support the teachers and the students, um, making all that web infrastructure work and scale, uh, ramping up the production of the, the actual product. So making sure that could be produced at the scale that was needed for the rest of the world and then, you know, again, this was the most extreme experience in hyperscale that I've ever experienced in my career. Um, when you have the BBC behind something like that and making a big noise internationally about how great this was in the education system in the UK, they had 70 ministers of education lined up from around the world to get this thing. And they wanted it. So it was probably like what some ventilator or mask manufacturers at the moment are feeling, right? Where, oh my God, every hospital in the world now wants what we have, and we we don't know how to go scale this thing. So we had to figure that out very quickly. Um, And so in a period of about 18 months, we went from nothing to 50 countries (laughs) in deployment, right? Mm -hmm. So it was just, how do you get out of the way? How do you use ecosystem? How do you use partners, right? to Go do this thing in every country. How do you how do you um, uh, get out of the way of manufacturing? Right, find ways to to fund manufacturing at massive scales where where the, the small cash reserves of a of a small nonprofit aren't in the way. We had to figure that stuff out as a startup team, and the team did an amazing job to go do that. It was it really was a case of hyperscale, um, mm. and and yeah, that was that was an amazing journey to go build that. Um, I eventually had to, had to go back to California. I, I came back to Europe for two years to do that. I had to go back to California. And, uh, and we decided to take on a, take on an operational CEO at that point that could just run and operate um, the foundation. Things were already scaled. It was profitable by that point. So it could run on its own. And, and I went back to ARM to work on these developer things that eventually um, ended up becoming a Impulse.
0: That's uh, that's quite a story. If there's a single word that I think so far has described ele- every element of what you've talked about for me, it's an uh, impact uh, impact investor, truly impactful, if you will, and certainly as a as an entrepreneur. Um, final question that we always like to ask on uh, these podcasts is um, just general recommendations of books or resources you know that you'd like to share. What what inspires you?
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm interesting in that. I think like a lot of engineers, I, I don't read a lot of nonfiction um, because I deal with so much nonfiction in my day job, right? I have a lot to deal with and, and sometimes you need to escape and imagine a little bit to, to kind of open up your thinking. And so I read science fiction. I, I love science fiction as a way to think about things differently and think about the future. So a book that I'm going to recommend that i that, um, Opened my eyes to to a lot of fun things and made me laugh <laughs> out loud many times. My wife would look at me strangely but I'm uh, <laughs> laughing out loud reading a science fiction book. And this book is called *The Punch Escrow* by Tal Klein. Um, it's particularly uh, appropriate right now um, because it does talks a lot about artificial intelligence and um, 3D printing at a, at a nano nano um, as well as, uh, self-driving cars. And there's a, there's a, there's a fun, a fun point in the book where, where, um, humans are no longer allowed to drive, right? Self-driving cars are truly only self-driving and it's only emergency situations that a human can, can kind of hijack a car and drive. There's one, one point in the book where, where, um, a man was injured and had to steal an ambulance, right, and drive this ambulance. And, and there were alarm bells going off in the network of AI self-driving vehicles going, oh, my God, there's a monkey driving this car. We're all in danger, <laughs> us responsible self-driving AI cars. Everyone get out of the way. Panic, panic, panic. It sounds a lot like today where we're worried about the one self-driving car on the road. In the middle of all these people driving. So things like that are, are always um, eye opening yeah. for what the future may, may hold. And so
0: great recommendation I will definitely have to put it on my uh, my re- read list so look Zach it has been a true pleasure um, I you know really kind of sign off saying you know Zach is uh, an impact in entrepreneur impact investor and impact technologist in the embedded space and we've been very pleased to feature you on our digital uh, leadership podcast series so that Zach thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your uh, your brilliant and impactful insights You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archive versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.